0: Why don't we stand this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer. So, Father, we thank you this morning. What a gracious God you are. We thank you for the celebrations that are happening in our church. Someone shared they just turned 50 yesterday. We, Patty and I were at a 50th wedding anniversary. There's another one next Saturday. Man, we've got some amazing people in our church family. And, Father, I just pray for those that are challenged right now with difficulties and uh, sometimes it's medical Sometimes it's relational, sometimes it's financial. Lord, I just pray that you would be walking with each one through those seasons of challenge in their lives. We pray today, Father, as we come to you with needs in our lives, and we're all needy, and there's different levels of thirst in our soul, may we discover that you are the one who can quench the longings and the desires of our hearts. And we thank you for that, Father. And I pray today that we will understand the ramifications of even embracing you and walking with you and why sometimes people are thrown off guard when we become your servants and we start walking in a new direction. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Survival experts talk about the rule of three. We can live without air for about three minutes, without water for about three days, without food for about three weeks. Now, I know that there's exceptions to this, obviously. But it kind of reveals the limit of human existence. We're actually quite weak. We're very fragile, you know. Life is highly dependent on a lot of things going our way and when they don't, we're in trouble. And I think we've all experienced that in various degrees. It's interesting that Jesus describes a relationship with God in terms that we can understand. He uses physical, everyday things so that he can get across to us these powerful spiritual realities and truths. In his response to the temptation by the devil of turning stones into bread, he had gone 40 days without eating, it says that Jesus' response is helping us understand that we need to put the spiritual things in life even ahead of the material things. It has to be the right priority. It's the idea of putting God first, seeking his kingdom. All these other things then are added into our life. Jesus' response was simply, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. You and I can't survive just on a physical, materialistic level of living. We need something more than that. But on every word that comes from the mouth of God, there's a spiritual dynamic and a dimension that every human being literally longs for and desires. And when we try to just fill our lives with material things, we'll find out that it's empty in the end. It's not what we think it'll bring us. To sustain spiritual life, we need to consume God's word even as food sustains our physical life. We wanna sustain our spiritual life, we gotta feed our souls got to feed our souls with the word of God. In John chapter six, verse 35, Jesus declared he was the bread of life. He was the one that would help sustain life. Now in John chapter seven, Jesus is focusing on this issue of human longing and desire. It's really the wellspring. It's what's driving us. It's our motivation. It's this thirst in every human heart. Just like water is essential for human existence, the absence of water is a crisis. You know, we don't really relate to water in Canada. I'll tell you why, we just have a lot of it. I remember a number of years ago, a friend of ours from Israel, one of our guides that we got to know, he was traveling through Canada. And uh, unfortunately, Patty and I were on vacation, so we missed him. But when I was chatting with him later, he said, you know what I really noticed the most about Canada? I said, what did you like about the country? So said, I could not get over how much water Canada has. And when you're an Israeli, you understand it because you're living in a desert climate. You know, there's only three places where Israelis can get water from. It either rains, you have the Little Jordan River, which they're siphoning off more all the time to do irrigation and things. And as a result, the Dead Sea is getting lower and lower. And then you have, you know, desalinization operations in the Mediterranean. So water is an extremely precious commodity to a group of people that really have a scarcity of it. And so with us, we have an abundance of it, but when you don't have it, you realize how critical it is. And when you don't have water, I don't know if you've ever had those experiences where you haven't had water, and your body's craving water. It's just a drive in your life, and after a while, it becomes so intense that nothing else begins to matter. It's that intense, that drive. So the Bible actually picks up on that. In the Old Testament, we see these prophetic utterances that are speaking about having the thirst In our souls quenched by God. And Isaiah says it this way in 55, verse 1. He said, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. What does that mean? Well, verse 3, he says, Give ear and come to me. So when we're coming to the waters, we're actually coming to God. Listen that you may live. Listen doesn't just mean hear something, listen means take it to heart and put it into practice. It's listen to do. That's what we need to understand. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promise to David. So water was thought of in ancient times as a provision from God. As a matter of fact, when Israel was going through a time of drought, what would they do? They would start humbling themselves. They would start praying. They would start confessing their sins. They would repent. They would turn to God and ask God to provide water. God, God was the one as, seen as the source of water or the one who could meet the needs of the people in the land. David Bowes says, divine blessing is spoken of in terms of water, and the desire for spiritual life is described in terms of thirst for water. And even in our text today, John is gonna zero in on the the symbol that was a central part of the Feast of Tabernacles. You see, the Feast of Tabernacles was really a celebration of the ingathering of harvest, It was a harvest festival, and D.A. Carson says, on the seven days of the feast, a golden flagon was filled with water from the Pool of Siloam. Now, you know, I I was doing a little research, and it was interesting. The reason why there was even people living up in the high region of Jerusalem was because of this pool, the Pool of Siloam. It was a well. They had water. You can't live in a place where there's no water. And so they would draw water from the pool of Siloam and it was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. And as the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts on the shofar, this was a trumpet connected with joyful occasions, were sounded. And while the pilgrims watched, the priest would process around the altar with the flagon, and the temple choir began singing the hallelujah, the hallelujah. And the Halil is just really uh, Psalm 113 of Psalm 118. So they would be singing those psalms or songs. That's what they were. They were songs. They were singing them. And when, they, uh, and when the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook a lulav, which is a willow and a, a myrtle twig tied with palm in his right hand, while with his left hand he would raise a piece of citrus fruit, which was a sign of the ingathered harvest. And then they would all cry out, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. They repeated it three times. And the wine and the water were poured out into their respective silver bowls, and then they were poured out before the Lord. So this was a very ritualistic thing, right? You could, they all did the same thing every single time, but it was symbolic of something very significant. These ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles were related in Jewish thought both to the Lord's provision of water in the desert. Remember when they were going through the desert, those 40 years, and they got to certain places and water, how many know in a desert water is like, that's a key thing. And they got to places where there was no water and they were so... Uh, upset with Moses because, you know, they got to this place and there was no water and the people were fainting and they were crying out and complaining and all the rest of it. And God said to Moses, go strike that rock. And when they struck the rock, water began to gush out. I want you to know how impressive this is. This isn't just like enough for about two or three people to drink. They had about two million people And they all drank and were refreshed. Then they had animals with them. And the animals drank and they were refreshed. And what that whole picture is to show us that when you and I are with God, when you and I are walking with God, when you and I are following God, when you and I are trusting God, God can provide what we need in the midst of the wildernesses. Our lives, God can provide in the difficult places of our lives. You know, so often we're leaning to our own understanding. We allow a lot of anxiety and frustration and thought and preparation to figure out how we're going to do this and that and the other thing. But just listen to these. God is the one that's going to take care of those things for us. He's the one that's going to satisfy us on a natural level, but he's also going to satisfy us on a more deep level, which is the very thirsting of our souls. This is a picture of it. And not only was there a provision of water, but there was a sense of the pouring out of his spirit in the last days. So the pouring uh, out at the Feast of Tabernacles really refers symbolically to the Messianic age. That's the age we're living in right now, in which a stream from a sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. And what's happening today, God has poured out his spirit on all humanity there's an openness. God's presence is now moving across the face of the earth. You know, sometimes we look at our world and go, oh, it's so bad. There's so many difficulties, so many problems. But I want you to know there are more people today that have embraced Christ than there's ever been in human history. There are more people today filled with the spirit of the living God than there's ever been in human history. Isn't that an amazing thought? So I think sometimes we focus on the negative because it's pushing in our face. But I want to encourage us today that God is moving across the land. He's moving across the face of this earth. Many thousands, thousands and thousands of people are coming into God's kingdom filled with his wonderful presence, his spirit. So Jesus now is gonna tie all of these thoughts together in our text today. And he's gonna say something to that generation that I think has incredible application for you and I living in this moment of time. And that's what we need to discover. So I wanna look at three aspects in this quenching of, our, of the thirst in our lives. And the first one is to simply accept the invitation of Jesus. It's so simple. Jesus makes a very stunning announcement about the deepest longings can only be realized in him. He says in verse 37 here, John does, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Anybody get an echo from Isaiah 55 there? Are you picking up that? Who's talking? Same person. It's God himself, but now it's God in the flesh. He's making this announcement. He says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. That's a nice way of saying he hadn't been crucified yet and resurrected. Okay, so what is Jesus saying? Well, what Jesus is saying right at this moment is all of the times that they have celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles from the very beginning When they were a nation, they came out of the wilderness. That's why they they built booths, temporary shelters, because it's a picture in their mind of them traveling as pilgrims through the wilderness. And you and I are the same way. We're pilgrims. We're just passing through this life. And sometimes we get so locked into thinking we're going to be here forever. You're just passing through, folks. This is not the destination. This is just the journey. The destination is up ahead. And we got to remember that. You know, sometimes we settle in like, I want to stay here, I want to stay here the rest of my life. Hey, listen, what, what is before us is far greater than what's here by a long shot. And especially when things start breaking down in your bodies or your life is falling apart, you're going, hey, I could look forward to a better time. And I'm going to tell you, there's a better time coming. There's a better time coming. We're pilgrims passing through. And they built these little temporary dwelling places, and then they were celebrating with gratitude God's provision in the wilderness. You and I can celebrate what God's doing in our life. Every day we can celebrate. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. I think sometimes we focus on the problem. I think we need to learn how to celebrate more. We need to focus in on what God is actually doing, the blessings, the good things, the grace of God, the mercies of God. Then it says here, God says, "I'm I'm gonna satisfy you Listen, he says, "I'm going to satisfy you with the Spirit." Uh, the verse before it said this. He said, uh, "Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them." I mean, I think that's a beautiful picture. There's, in other words, there's there's something refreshing happening all the time inside of our lives, you know. And he says here, uh, "As the Scripture has said," that's an interesting statement. "As the Scripture has said," which Scripture? Well, the reality is Jesus is not quoting a scripture here. What he's quoting is a compilation of verses of scripture and ideas, and he's putting them all together. He's basically saying the scriptures actually teach this concept. And so let's take a look at some of the scriptures that are actually reinforcing what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is basically telling these people, all of the time you've been celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, they're all been pointing to one thing. I'm the fulfillment of it. When you come to me, you're actually coming to the fulfillment of everything that you've been experiencing. And I think we need to realize that. So he starts out here in Isaiah 58, verse 11. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. How many think that's a beautiful promise? What is he saying? He's going to satisfy your needs in a desert. He's going to satisfy your needs in a wilderness. You're going to be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. How many say, "Wow, if I'm planting a garden in the middle of a desert, the greatest need I have is water." And God is saying, "Listen, when you come to me, you will never lack. I will provide. I will provide what you need." But a lot of times we go, "Well, I got if I don't do it, it's not going to get done." No, I think we cooperate with God, but he's the provider. Look at Isaiah 44. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. So now he's tying together a thought, water and spirit. How many see that? This is, you know, he's tying this idea together. Water is now a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying that. And he's basically saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit on your offspring. I don't know about you, but that's pretty powerful. You know, sometimes when you're a parent, you go, hey, you know, what's going to happen to my kids? I believe God wants to pour out his spirit on them. He wants to open their hearts to him. You know, I'm standing on these kind of verses. I'm saying, God, if you tarry, not only will you pour out your spirit on my children, you're going to pour it out on my grandchildren and their children and their children for as long as it takes for you to come. God, you've made this promise. We need to learn how to stand on these things and say, God, I believe it. I believe that's your longing and your desire and you and I can begin to pray and believe God that he will do what he promises. And yet, this text that Jesus is talking about, the scripture, I think there is a text that probably relates to this even in a deeper way. You remember when they were in exile and they came back out and they went back to the land and they started rebuilding the walls and eventually... Uh, They got to the place where the walls were up and then they decided to go to Watergate and they started listening to the word of God. They began repenting and praying and began to recite the historical background of their nation in the book of Nehemiah. And this is what they said. In their hunger, He's talking about, they're talking about their past. In their hunger, our ancestors' hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. That was manna. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock, alluding to what happened with Moses striking the rock. And then it says, you gave them your good spirit to instruct them. And isn't that what God does today? He gives us his spirit to begin to instruct us. He is our teacher. And you did not withhold your manna from their mouths and you gave them water for their thirst wow are you thirsty God says I'll I'll quench it I'll give you my presence that's the answer to our great needs you know a lot of times we put all kinds of false substitutes in our lives thinking this is going to quench the thirst in my soul it doesn't work we were designed to quench our thirst so what does he mean the spirit because you see, Jesus is now, he says to them, uh, by this he meant the Spirit. By this he meant the Spirit. He's explaining the, the rivers that are flowing in you are actually the Holy Spirit. He's talking about his presence will be within you. You know. So Jesus, not to allow us to be confused, says that our, our, our thirst will be quenched by the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, that's God. God in us. You know, not only did God come among us, not only was God with us, Emmanuel, but when Jesus rose, he said, it's needful that I leave so that another comforter would come. It's the Spirit. And now the Spirit has come, and he comes and dwells within us. The spirit of the living God. So that's why Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How can he do that? His spirit lives in us. We need to understand something. You know, I was a brand new Christian. We, we, we can talk in, in, in certain words and we go, did you ask Jesus to come into your life? You know, it's, 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 like, it's like the Christian language, right? What does that mean? Ask Jesus into your life. Well, it just means that I, I, I believe that Jesus, so then it becomes a mental ascent. But no, it's more than that. You see, when you and I believe in our innermost being that Jesus died for us, and we confess with our mouth that he rose again from the dead, God does a special work called regeneration. His spirit comes inside of us. God starts to live inside of us. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 1.27, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I remember as a brand new Christian, one day I was reading... The scriptures, and I came to this verse, and they came alive. You ever have a scripture just kind of leap off of the page? And it hit me with full impact. You know what? Christ in me. Christ in me. I thought about it. Wow, God is living inside of me. Anybody ever have that little epiphany that God lives inside of you? And then you start thinking about it. Well, the universe can't even contain God. And now the God whom the universe cannot contain living inside of every heart of the believer. I go, wow, this is so amazing, God is in me. It was just like, yeah, I was just blown away with that idea. And then I started thinking, well how does that happen? It's the spirit of God. And then Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he says this to the church at Corinth, he says, do you not know that your bodies are temples? And in the ancient world, a temple was the place where the gods dwelt. And he's saying to them, God is dwelling in you. God is living in your body. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have received from God. You're not your own. You know, just think of how crazy it is. You know, we walk around, you know, it's it's like, I'm, I'm deciding what I'm gonna do. Well, yeah, God gives you a will, But the reality is, once we come to Christ, we really belong to him. He's living in us. And the true life of the true believer, I believe that the life that is gonna bring great satisfaction is the life that says, now that I belong to you, Jesus, I'm gonna give my life to your will and purposes every day and watch how this thirst that's been in my life all of this time will be quenched because now I'm living a different life. And what happens is there's joy in that life and there's hope in that life and there's peace in that life. You see, when we come to Christ, we receive eternal life. But it's not just a forever life. It's a life that produces certain things, the fruit of the Spirit. The result of the Spirit in our life is love and joy and peace and and patience and gentleness and self-control. Oh, these are the things you and I lack. How many say, yeah, I don't have a lot of patience, Pastor, or I don't have a lot of self-control, or, you know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm not that gentle, Pastor, or, you know, I'm not that faithful, Pastor. Hey, but when the work of the Spirit is allowed to work in our lives, these are the results of what starts happening inside of us. God starts changing us, and we become the person that God designed us to become. And it's exciting, and it gets better, and it gets more exciting And I'm going to tell you, you know, when you first start out, you think, well, I'm really excited. I found Jesus. We're like, you know, a little bubbling brook. We're all excited. But then after a while, there's the trials and the difficulties and the challenges of life when we get distracted and we start losing that joy and that hope and that peace and all that stuff. But I want to tell you something. That Today, this is so neat that when you realize that the thirst inside of your soul will not be filled by the things of this world, but will only be filled by the presence of the living God, and you go after that, all of a sudden all that debris gets broken. There's a new freedom in your soul and there's a new pursuit after God and there's a greater joy. And I'll tell you what happens then as you start walking with God and you get stronger day by day, it gets more exciting. You see, I have a deeper passion for God today, a greater understanding greater joy, greater hope, more, more, greater levels of satisfaction. Why? Because it's, it's there. It's in God. It's not in the things of this world. This is all passing away. It's all fleeting. It's all going by. But when you pursue the spiritual things, they're eternal. And they just become more rich and more real. And that's why he, he goes on to say, you know, we're not, you're not your own, he says. Okay, how are we gonna respond to Jesus' pronouncement? He's still making the claim today. All you that are thirsty. All you that are thirsty, come to me. You know, I don't know where you're at in your life right now. You're saying, I'm I'm, I'm thirsty, Pastor. Come to Jesus. He'll quench that thirst. Let me move on to the second aspect. This is a little more challenging. You have to understand that the moment you come to Jesus, it's gonna create a little controversy. Jesus always creates controversy. Did you know that? People are always divided over Jesus. We need to understand Jesus is a polarizing figure. If you don't know that, I'll give you a little example. Go to any place and say to people, what do you guys think about Jesus? And I can guarantee you're gonna get a reaction. Come on. Just talk about Jesus. Go to any place. Hey, what do you guys think about Jesus? Just start talking to people. What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? You're gonna get a polarizing response. I guarantee you, Jesus polarizes. That was true back then. It's true today. <clears throat> He's often misunderstood, and it creates controversy in the minds of people. Hearing, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. What does he mean by that? Well, they're, they're thinking back to Moses when he was speaking in the wilderness. Moses said in Deuteronomy, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. I'm from among you, from your fellow Israelites. and you're gonna, You need to listen to him. You must listen to him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. In other words, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm supporting what he's saying. You know, these guys were also aware that Jesus was the one who had multiplied the loaves and the fishes, you know. They had done all these miracles. Isn't it amazing? He's raising people from the dead. All, things, all kinds of things are happening. So others said, no, no, he's the Messiah, okay? You go, wait, wait, wait a minute, pastor. Uh, Don't they know that he is the prophet and the Messiah? But you see, we're looking at it from a different vantage point. We're looking at hindsight. These guys are still confused. They have no idea. uh, Don Carson says it this way, a contemporary Christian reader might find it difficult to imagine how these two confessions could be divided. In the first century, however, many Jews thought of the promised prophet and of the Messiah as two separate people. Interesting, isn't it? He goes on to say it's possible, not certain, that Christians were the first to identify the Davidic Messiah with the prophet like Moses precisely because they recognized in Jesus the one who perfectly fulfilled both prophecies. Just as it is doubtful that anyone systematically linked the suffering servant prophecies with the royal messianic prophecies until Jesus himself came on the scene and started saying that. Everybody else had a, they didn't see this. They, They didn't connect the dots. Jesus had to show us that. Well, those, that's two groups of people. Here's another group. Still others said, well, how can this Messiah? How can he be, he be the Messiah? He's, he's come from Galilee. Oh, my. These guys have some biases. They're in Judea right now. And do you know they have regional biases? No, I, I can point out to you, we even have it today. If I said how many people are Euler fans and how many are Flame fans, we'd already have people polarized. It's the way it works. There's regions. And that's true in life. There's all these regional factions and that was true in that day. They were, you know, the people from Galilee were looked down upon by the Judeans because in the, in the people's mind, the people who lived in Jerusalem thought they were more holy than everybody else because they were in the holy city. They were close to the holy temple. They were far more pure than these guys way out in Galilee. Ah, man, all those guys. You know, a bunch of country bumpkins. That's how they thought of them. They had that bias against them. How can, now he's from Galilee, Right? Uh, does not scripture say that the messiah will come from david's descendants and from bethlehem the town where david lived thus the people were divided because of jesus now john reveals the irony of their conclusion because as readers we know that jesus was both a descendant of david and born in bethlehem but these guys they don't seem to know that stuff and why doesn't john straighten them up because that's not his purpose like the other gospels may be talking about the earthly birth of Jesus, but John doesn't start in his gospel that way. How does John start? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's focusing on the eternal nature of Jesus, not his earthly origins. And so he doesn't even address it. He leaves these guys, and he leaves us looking at them and going, they're clueless. They don't know any better. They don't know the story. They haven't investigated it. Do you know what I'm noticing today? People are not investigating anything. They're just, they're just listening to people and they all have an opinion and most of it is not well researched. People are actually closed minded. Jesus is seen as a threat to some and therefore persecution is the result. Why is it that Jesus and his followers still threaten people? Isn't that a great question? Why do people persecute people? Here we see that this controversy is not just an intellectual debate. It's far more sinister that evil tries to distort destroy what is good. Darkness is battling against the light. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Here we see that some of them were so threatened by Jesus that they wanted to arrest him and kill him. When we read in verse one, it says they desired to kill him. They weren't interested in justice. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. Jesus was a threat. Can you imagine being authorities in that day? And all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and everybody's listening to him. Thousands are flocking to him, and Eventually, when, they, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the high priest says, if we don't do something soon, the whole world will go after him. Well, the whole world ought to go after him. But there's evil in our world. There's a battle going on. And once we embrace Jesus, we soon discover a price that needs to be paid. Not all people will rejoice with our faith, which leads to the final aspect, that when we, once we quench our souls... With Jesus, we have to embrace the cost of being a follower of Christ. And there is a cost. And I think sometimes people get put off with the cost, you see. It's true that followers of Jesus are ridiculed and diminished because of their faith. What is tragic that some in authority resist Jesus. Some people abuse their authority and endeavor to quench the work of God in the lives of people. Conflict between blind prejudice and openness to truth. Do you know, it's interesting, evil cannot be reasoned with. Have you noticed that? There's a state of spiritual blindness that drives persecution. John has already explained what's driving this per- persecution so that truth is now denied. People are not open to hearing it. I-, I have been not mystified. I understand it. It's really difficult for some people to even listen. You, you-, you talk to somebody and say, can I tell you about Jesus? I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. As if they got all the answers. I mean, if your whole future was impinging on knowing who Jesus is and you say to people, I'd rather be ignorant. I mean, isn't that crazy? But That's how people are. They're so insecure and so blocked into a certain frame of thinking. There's not an open-mindedness to this. Listen to what John said earlier in chapter three. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. There's the reason. He's telling us it's a moral issue. It's not an intellectual problem, folks. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. They don't want to know. Please don't bring that light into this room. You're going to see how corrupt and bad I actually am. That's what they're thinking. But Jesus is there to set us free from that stuff. John, in relaying this incident, brings us back out to the story. Remember, they sent... The guards, the temple guards, to arrest Jesus. So here we pick it up again, verse 45. Finally, the guards had been sent out. They come back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? You're like, where is he? I mean, he's right there in the temple preaching. You know, we finally find him. And we sent you to arrest him, and you come back and you're empty handed. What's the deal? Well, no one ever spoke like this man does, the guards replied. Hmm. I had a little epiphany. I was reading uh, Don Carson. He says something very fascinating. He said, Why have the temple police not performed the tasks assigned them? The response of the guard sharpens up the reasons for their hesitation. No one ever spoke the way this man does. Their problem lay partly in the fact that they were not brutal thugs, mercenaries trained to perform any barbarous acts provided the pay was right. In other words, these guys were not just, you know, Blind obedience people. This wasn't Roman soldiers coming to rest. These people, Carson says, were actually drawn from the Levites. They were religiously trained people. And as they were trained in their, you know, the scriptures, they were listening to Jesus and could feel themselves torn apart at the deepest level of their being by the same deeds and words of Jesus that was tearing the population at large. In other words, what was creating a division in the population was now creating a division in the temple guards. The witness of the guards was not born of genuine faith. But John intends his readers to perceive that the guards spoke better than they actually knew. In other words, what they're saying is so profound but they don't realize what they're actually saying. So what are they saying? Literally, they're rendering their words, no man. The Greek word there is anthropos. We get the word anthropology from, okay? No man, no human being has ever spoken as he does. For John's readers know, as the guards did not, that Jesus is not just a human being. He's more than just a human being. He is a human being, but he's also God in the flesh. And when he speaks, he's the incarnate word and the one whose every word and deed is the revelation of the Father. Can you imagine being at the temple and Jesus is now talking? And you're you're literally, now Patty and I were talking, Patty goes, I was really blown away God's talking to Moses face to face. Listen, Jesus is God. is God. And when Jesus was talking to people, they were talking to God face to face. And he was teaching them face to face. Can you imagine what he was saying? It was blowing people away. No wonder people were mesmerized by Jesus. I mean, you're talking to God. And you know, Jesus was knowing what was inside of people's thoughts. And so that when he did things, sometimes he would say things like, well, I know what you're thinking, you know. And then he would, he would he'd start, he'd start teaching and he would be pulling out all the junk out of their lives. He goes, you know, uh, when I came into your house, you treated me like this. This woman treated me like that. You know, he was exposing what this guy was thinking. Can you imagine how unnerving it would be to talk to Jesus? Anybody be a little shook up talking to Jesus? He's, he's pulling stuff out of your brains and knows what you're thinking and he's talking right to you. You know, you can't hide anything from him. He knows it all. Wow. Now the response to openness is often ridicule and shame. That's how they responded to the temple guards. We notice what they said to them. You mean he's deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? Well, the answer is yeah. Some of them are. But they're quiet about it. They're a very small minority. But the major group didn't believe in him. Then he says no, but this mob that knows nothing of the law There's a curse on them. Now, what are we getting here? We're getting this idea that these people, there's a Hebrew word from Amaharats. They're called the common people. They were stigmatized because they were often ignorant of the Torah. Well, they were ignorant of the Pharisaical interpretation of the Torah. They were a little bit ignorant of the oral traditions of these religious leaders. So the religious leaders were looking down on these people. You see? We have to have, be careful. We can't have an air of superiority. Because Jesus was listened intently by the common people. The, the, you know, the intellectuals, religious people, they weren't even listening to Jesus. They didn't even know what he was saying. You know, they just were getting reports, secondhand information. You know, I'm going to say something. A lot of people today in our society, all they're getting is secondhand information, and most of it's distorted. How's that? That's tragic. Not looking into it ourselves. You know, we're bad, right? So they were basically saying, you're just like the mob. You're just like these common people. You're just like these Galilean trash. You've got a curse on you, you know? you know. Don't you know we know what's going on? We're not believing that him. he's, he's the Messiah. He's just a deceiver in their minds. Craig Keener says, and he points out that the irony and this blind prejudice that the very elite in Jerusalem had who were deeply opposed to Jesus. It says the leaders appealed to their view of Jesus as a false prophet. Ironically, they questioned the competency of those who heard Jesus firsthand, which, you know what, they didn't, without hearing from Jesus themselves, merely on the basis of social class. They saw him as a commoner, they saw him as a carpenter, they saw him as a Galilean, they said, hey, you know, who is this guy, he's nothing. Now Nicodemus actually stands up, not because he's, he's bold or anything, he's just gonna point out something. It says, Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, so not everybody agreed with them, he asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? Wow, he was challenging them. Keener goes on to say the point seems to be that the very standard accepted by the authorities is the standard that's actually gonna convict them. They don't even know what's going on. They pronounce a curse against the masses who do not know the law, yet prove unlearned in that same law themselves. They also fail to judge righteous judgments. Remember, Jesus says, you're just judging by mere appearances. You don't even have the scoop. You don't have the information. If Nicodemus warns that the law requires them to hear Jesus and know what he's doing, John explicitly informs his audience that the elite had failed to hear Jesus and that they did not know him, where he was from, or what he was doing. In other words, they were totally ignorant. So they're telling these the people are ignorant, but in reality, it's an indictment against themselves. They're ignorant. They replied, are you from Galilee too? How many are already getting a sense of a little regional bias here? Look into it and you will find out that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Wrong again. Hey, read the Bible. Jonah was from Galilee. The prophet Jonah, he was from Galilee. There were other prophets from Galilee. But that just showed you how prejudiced they were in their mind. Well, what is John trying to communicate to us, the reader? Well, the primary thing is that Jesus meets our deepest longings and thirsts. That's the first lesson we need to walk away with. Am I thirsting? Am I longing? Go to Jesus. He's the one that all the scriptures have been pointing to. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to humanity. Go Go to him. Yet despite this beautiful reality, we see a darker side, Right? And let me just point out, some of, some of you may not, may not know this, but I'll tell you, we have been involved in ministry in India for a long, long time. And over the years, we've been helping a ministry, you know, plant churches, train leaders, you know, help with orphans. Our church actually built one of the biggest orphanages there. And yeah, there's two, but we built the biggest one. And our church is supp- supporting all these orphans. Some of you don't know that. Well, quite a few years ago, before COVID, you know, Uh, what they would do at the orphans is they would allow them to go back to their villages to visit with extended family. Okay? And one of the boys, and I remember this little boy because he was 11 years old at the time and because we went so often they would have these productions and I remember one Sunday he, he got up there and he literally shared Psalm 119 by memory. Now, you don't know what that means that's 176 verses that's a lot of verses he just racked them off boom 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 he just knew them all by memory i was just like stunned now i didn't understand he's satan in hindi right so i i turned to you know dr thomas i said hey what's going on here and he says he's he's reciting psalm 119 by memory he said well how's he doing he's going well he's nailing it you know just zipping on through it I said that's awesome, you know. And and then you know when I was around these kids, you know they're worshiping God. It's so beautiful. I mean they're so intense. These orphans worshiping God, and praying like you wouldn't believe. It was so amazing. Well, that little boy went to that village, and his uncle murdered him, just because he was a Christian, just because he was a Christian, you know. And then you know I've been there since, and I've taught. And some of the, one of the students I was teaching, they murdered him before I came back the next year because he was out preaching. So. So we can see, you know, in all of the beauty of the life of Christ, there's another side, a dark side, a sinister side, a picture of rejection, stigma, persecution against those who embrace the life of Christ. You go, well, even as I think about this, my heart is grieved. But we know that this life is not all there is. And here's how I'm comforted. When I think that this injustice will one day be addressed by our loving Father in heaven. God's going to deal with all this stuff. Even though you and I can forgive people, even as Stephen forgave Saul and the group that was stoning him, you know what? God still dealt with, God God will deal with people. We need to know that. And when we look past this earthly life and know that a day is coming that all evil will be defeated in every injustice addressed by God. And then I, I turn to the last book. See, I, I see Revelation as a book of comfort. I, I, I know a lot of people today, they're into, you know, trying to figure out how all gonna end. I think it's a book designed to comfort a minority group of people who were under great persecution. That's what the book's designed to do. It's all about Jesus. You haven't figured that out yet, but it is. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. These people are dying because of their faith. That's what he's telling us here. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Now, I think it's not so much that they're, they're saying these words to God. But I think what's happening is when God sees injustice, God is, gonna, is a just God. He's gonna deal with that injustice. That's what's gonna happen. And then this verse says, then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. And that tells me that martyrdom is gonna continue. You know, I don't like to say it that way, but it's true and it's happening. But here's what I think we need to know. We need to understand that we're living in a hostile world to our faith. So not only do we need to come to Jesus to quench our thirst, but we need to come to Jesus to understand that there's hostility towards us. And it's not because of something you're doing, it's something, the fact that Christ is in you. That's what you need to know. That's the reason why God gives us the beautiful gift of Christian community called the church. I really would, I do believe, if we had deeper levels of persecution, you would more people would be in church that say that they love Christ because you know what you'd find out the, the the lines are going to get drawn deeper, and the people that you're going to feel a part of are the believers, who love and accept Christ and who love and accept each other. That's going to be more important in the days ahead. Watch, and that's where we need to find love and acceptance in the community of faith. So let's not be seduced by the veneer of a civilized quote unquote society when evil is seeking to destroy life. And that's exactly what's happening. Everywhere I turn in our society today, death is being promoted. How many actually see it? Open up your eyes. Death is being promoted in this society today like never before. But is the cost of following Jesus worth it? And the answer is absolutely. Because you know why? We're speeding toward that amazing hour when the kingdom of this world is gonna become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. So we're gonna have you stand. I'm gonna take you a couple of minutes over. I wanna re-sing the chorus, we uh, last song we sang there. Uh, in closing today, did I lose you, Andrea? She's coming. Okay. We are gonna sing the name of Jesus. Because there's power in that name. You're going to help us, Curtis? You're going to help us here? Okay. I'm recruiting. Because I'm going to turn my mic off. I'm going to let those guys lead us. But I'm going to sing. Believe me, I love this song. There's power in the name of Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, I'm thirsty. You know what I'm going to tell you? Cry out to Jesus. Say, Lord... This is the need in my life. I need to be saved from my sin. I need to be saved from my addiction. I need to be saved from my discouragement. I need to be saved from depression. I need to be healed in my body. Whatever that need is, call out to Jesus today. And then I'm also telling you, don't be afraid of the battle that's coming against your soul. The closer you get to Jesus, the more fierce it gets. But the stronger you get on the inside, the more you can resist the pressure from outside. So that's why I'm trying to get you strong in the Lord. I'm trying to help you guys grow and be strong and be mighty, right? Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power so you can handle those pressures coming from outside. So let's sing this.
1: I just want to speak the name of Jesus Over every heart within your presence I speak Jesus I just want to speak the name of Jesus till every dark addiction starts to break declaring that. Freedom. I speak Jesus Your name is power Your name is healing Your name is life Break every stronghold Shine
0: we thank you. We thank you for the name of Jesus, the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, I just thank you for the power in the name of Jesus. Demons tremble. Lord, I just thank you for that name, that beautiful name that brings salvation. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. We thank you for it. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your authority. We thank you for your power today. We thank you for your delivering work. We thank you, O oh God, you're hearing our cry. You're feeling the broken places of our soul. Even as we're drinking deeply of you today, Father, may you quench the cry and the longings of our spirit and soul. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave today.